the, not an announcement, this morning I've got five kids, so, uh, you know, Easter Sunday usually involves a lot of sugar in the beak, and, um, but amazingly, the, the, the Easter bunny left this note for us on our floor, listen to it, I'll read it to you, dear inhabitants of home 334-65511-J forward slash 9VR, okay, I mean, this guy's got to get to, I don't know if it's a guy, is it a girl, Easter bunny, uh, got to get to a lot of houses, and it says, more than 2,000 years ago, in a garden just like yours, the disciples found a priceless gift, Jesus, back from death's very jaws. So to celebrate that great and glorious day, I've hidden some sweet treats in the grass and in the hay. They're bound to make you say, gee whiz, but just remember, it's all about Jesus. <laughs> And then, of course, the, the um, Easter Bunny was good on his promises. There was a lot of sugar. So, a question. Thanks, Tess. Is God really there for us? Is he really there for us? I don't know what you've gone through in your life. I've gone through some difficult times, and no doubt you have too. And if, you know, life is, the past says anything about life in the future, there's some more difficult days ahead. My question is, has God been there for you? Is God really there holding on to you? You see, in our difficult times, either underneath are his everlasting arms or there's nothing under you at all. How can we even know? Well, today I want to preach on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. But we've been going through a series, um, the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 12 to 25. It's the story of a man called Abraham. So we've been Going through the series, and I knew I needed to preach about the death and the resurrection of Jesus today. So do I push aside Abraham and just go to the New Testament and preach on the death and resurrection of Jesus? Well, I realized the next portion of Abraham's story points towards the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So I thought, oh, I'm just going to preach from the Old Testament, from the story of Abraham, and then make the jump to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. If you didn't know that, the Old Testament is like kind of this picture book full of these amazing pictures of New Testament truths. I'm about to show you that today. So here we go, Abraham chapter 15, Genesis chapter 15 in Abraham. Whatever, I'm getting confused, all the sugar in my brain. So last week we learned from Jesse that Abraham has hit rock bottom emotionally. You know, he's been following God and things are not turning out like he thought it would. And one night he can't sleep and he's wondering if God is really underneath him with everlasting arms. He's wondering if God is going to take care of his future. He's feeling very vulnerable and he calls out to God and God speaks wonderful promises over him, promises of protection, provision. He says, come Abraham outside, look at the stars. And he says, count them. He says, you've got no child now, but you're going to have so many biological and spiritual descendants that there'll be more than all the, the stars in the sky. And then he makes this promise, Genesis 15, verse 7. I am the Lord who brought you out of earth to give you this land to take possession of it. So God has made these amazing promises, even given him the starlit sky, graphically portraying it. Abraham is just like us. He goes, God, I need more than some words and whispers and the sky, which I've seen before. I need something else. Listen to what he says. 
But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer or a heifer. I don't know how to pronounce that. Heifer. You come from a farm, right? Yeah, people from the farm. Us, us city people don't even know what a, how to pronounce heifer. It's a baby cow. A goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. Okay, let me just stop. It seemed like, Abraham, why'd you kill the animals? But let me explain. We've got to go back to the Old Testament. See, Abraham needs more than words. God has made these massive promises, but Abraham still doubts this entire partnership between him and God. He thinks to himself, perhaps God won't come through for me, or more likely, I won't come through for God. What if I so mess up things? Because he's already made some serious mistakes if, you read the, if you've been following the journey so far. And God doesn't chide Abraham for the start. Instead, he firms up the promise all the more. He cuts a covenant. Have you heard that saying before? To cut a covenant. Well, it actually comes from the story. What is a covenant? Well, a covenant is, you know, if it's a, a formal agreement based on promises and obligations. It goes beyond mere words of promise between, promises between two parties. <clears throat> it's formalized. It's legally binding. It's a pledge. You know, verbalizing a promise to someone is one thing, but formalizing it and adding legal consequences if one fails to keep it is another level of promise altogether. It's something more like a contract. In biblical terms, they don't call it a contract, they call it a covenant. Now, in modern cultures like ours, we make contracts. We write down our agreements with ink, we sign it, we have witnesses confirm it, and then that piece of paper is stored away very safely. I don't know what contracts you've entered into, but the two biggest one in, ones in my life are with my house and my spouse, okay? I still remember Julie and I signing, committing to pay a lot of money for the next 30 years. That's how long the loan is to repay. And we're 10 years in and we still haven't eaten into the principal amount for 30 years. <laughs> but we made this commitment, a covenant, contract, and then, of course, there's the contract we made with each other legally and made it a covenant in the presence of God and witnesses. We said to each other, I will forsake all others and bind myself to you, to be faithful to you. But in ancient cultures that couldn't read or write, two parties would enact the agreement dramatically, vividly. And instead of keeping the contract in a bank, they would keep the, the covenant in the memory bank. They would do something so graphic for everybody to see that no one could ever forget it. See, what they would often do in the ancient world is they would cut a covenant. They would get all of these animals, they would cut the animals in two, and they would lay the opposite, the two halves, on either side of a narrow pathway. So this would be a bloodied pathway. Then one of the covenant makers, or both of the covenant makers, would make the promise to each other with words. I promise to do this, and, and, and this is what, you know, you're obliged to do, then they would say these words, if I do not keep my promises, may I be cut to pieces like these animals. Okay, it was binding. It was serious. They were saying to everyone, this is serious stuff. These are not cheap words. Then they would walk down the bloody uh, pathway. There were, there were different kinds of covenants. You know, if, if the two parties were equals, then, then they'd walk down together. But often what would happen is you'd get a powerful king 
and then a small little king of a neighboring state, and the small little king will say, please come, protect me. I'll give you like 50% of my income, you know, and, you, and, and then they would do the covenant, but the big king wouldn't bother to walk down the pathway because only the, the small partner would walk down the pathway. I promise I, I'll die if I don't give you 50% of my income. You can kill me. So the covenant was quite, you know, the, the senior person wouldn't bother walking down that bloody pathway. Well, Abraham receives the order, and he waits till daylight, and he gathers the animal, animals. He's so familiar with this covenant-making ritual that without instruction to do so, he cuts them in two, and he sets everything up for the ceremony. And in Genesis, we're told that he does this in the morning, but only in the night will the covenant take place. So he spends the day shooing away birds of prey, and he, he's waiting, he's waiting, he's taking a long time as if to suggest that he has plenty of time to wonder what's going to happen, happen next, and I'm pretty sure that he's wondering this question, who's going to walk down this alleyway of blood, and he, he probably goes, well, I'm going to walk down the alleyway of blood, I'm the one who's got to make promises here, because he's the minuscule partner in this partnership, or he thinks to himself, well, hang on, God has been good to me. Maybe, I don't want to be presumptuous in thinking, maybe God and I will walk down it together. Nah, that's too wild to even think about. Probably it's just him alone. He's going to walk down it alone. Well, that evening, the ceremony begins, but it's not at all like Abraham expected. It says, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared. Now, remember, God is invisible, and if you see him, and you're in the state of sin, in the Old Testament, it says such a serious thing, you can die. So whenever God makes his presence known, he usually takes on these symbols, usually smoke or fire. And in this case, this smoke pot with fire representing the glory of God and flames coming out of it. So, so whether it's a vision that Abraham's having or it's really happening in a, in a, in a, in a physical way, Abraham can see this fire pot appear. God has arrived. The formal word for it is a theophany. The, a God has made his presence known. But listen to what happens next. A blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give the land. Abraham had been asking, am I gonna walk down the pathway all on my own? Or maybe, just maybe, God and I will walk down it together. What he could not have imagined is that God would arrive and would walk down the pathway of blood all on his own. Remember Abraham's doubts about this partnership. Perhaps God may not come through for him, or more likely, he won't come through for God. But see, God vanquishes those doubts, not with words, but in lucid action. God's keeping of his promises depends on God alone. And the theological term for this is God is making a covenant of grace. That is not two-way, it's not equal, it's one way, it's unilateral, it's dependent on God alone. Now, I told you that these Old Testament stories are picture books of New Testament truths. And I told you that today I'm gonna to speak about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So let's jump from the story to what it's pointing to. And I wanna say four things quickly. Number one, Jesus is the presence of God. See, Abraham witnessed God appearing as a blazing fire. 
In, in this theophany, uh, God makes his presence observable, tangible, and he, and he takes a walk down the alley. But this points to the ultimate theophany, in which the star maker takes up residence in a human body in the person of Jesus. We celebrated that on Christmas Day. And then Jesus walks in our shoes. And he finally trudges up a path to Calvary's hill. You see the picture in advance. By the way, isn't it awesome all the movies and series being made to graphically bring alive the person of Jesus? I mean, it's just like, there's just so many coming all the time. They blow me away. I don't know if you've watched The Chosen yet. Have you watched The Chosen? I recommend it. I usually expect these Jesus movies, I'm going to watch them, I'm going to be a little embarrassed. Like, oh, they're going to do a lame job because that was, my, that was my early experience when you watch, like, you know, movie attempts of the person of Jesus. But then I watch this, I'm like, oh, no, that, that, that's cool. <laughs> I can, that Jesus, I, that's, that's like the one that I know in the Gospels. Jesus appears, he walks in our shoes, and his whole life gets narrower and narrower until he comes to the cross. The Gospel of Luke, by the way, if you read it, the first half of the Gospel, Jesus is wandering this way, that way, this way, as the Spirit leads. But then suddenly, I think it's in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says that he resolutely set himself towards Jerusalem. And his whole life, like a magnet, goes straight for that cross. He's heading to the cross. Everything from there on is just, his life is narrowing, narrowing, narrowing. The second thing that the story points to is that Jesus made the covenant in his own blood. See, the difference between this story and the New Testament story is that it's not the heifer, 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 oh goodness, I didn't even get it right, heifer. So it's like a silent I in heifer, heifer, okay. The heifer and the ram and the goat and the pigeon and the dove, Jesus is that. Jesus is the one who's sacrificing himself. The covenant ritual involves a lot of spilt blood on the ground. And in the same way, the salvation blessings that we will receive come to us at the cost of Jesus' life and his bloody sacrifice on the cross. You see, ancient covenant makers would say, if I don't keep my promise, I will be cut up. But look what Jesus, in effect, is saying. He's saying, because you did not keep your promise, I will be cut up. God takes our sin and puts it on Jesus and punishes it there. The senior member alone walks down this alleyway of sacrifice. Jesus made the covenant in his own blood. And the third thing we learn from this story is that salvation depends on God's grace alone. By salvation, I mean the forgiveness of your sins. I don't know what sins came trailing in behind you today. I know that in Western society and in, you know, in modern society, we've perfected the facade. I mean, isn't that what social media is? Projecting a preferred image of ourselves. And as much as we talk about authenticity as a value, we're still pretty good at hiding away the darker parts of our lives. But there are darker parts of our lives. I've never got to know someone very well who didn't have a dark side to their life that they could own up to. Whether they were proud of it or not, it's not what I'm talking about here. 
all of us need the grace of God. Luke 22, the night before Jesus is crucified, he's having the last supper and he pulls out a cup of wine and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. He defines the cup as the cup of the covenant. Jesus is making a promise and it's a promise that benefits us. This blood is poured out for you. Luke 22, just before he's arrested, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, although the Gospel of Luke says the Mount of Olives. And he is praying and he's saying, God, is there any other way? Because he knows what he's about to experience. Is there any other way? Take this cup from me. If there is any other way, and although the answer is not given, clearly an answer is communicated to the Son of God's heart. There is no other way. There's a lot of pressure on Christians to step away from this idea that Jesus is the savior of the world. Because that seems so exclusive. Actually, it's so inclusive. Because I tell you, the surest way to exclude ourselves from God is trying to get there through our own good deeds and moral efforts. Because like I said, none of us is good enough for God. If God can find a way where everybody, despite your failures and your flaws, can still get to God, that's something pretty inclusive. But my bigger point here is that Jesus believed that the only way to save the world was the cross. So if you go, hang on here, Jesus is just one way to God. Well, you actually, um, you, you're actually making fun of what Jesus went through on the cross. Because if there was just one way that people could be saved, then Jesus really didn't need to do it. And yet in his mind, he was sure the only way that people like you and me could make their way to God would be through what was about to happen on the cross. See, salvation depends on God's grace alone. In Luke 22, he speaks about the cup of the new covenant in his blood. And then, and then while he's praying, is there any other way? It says that he's sweating like drops of blood. These are powerful pictures pointing forward to the next day where Jesus would be crucified. You see, on the cross, Jesus showed, achieved salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, the promise of having God in our life now and forever. And this salvation comes to us not by our initiative, not by our effort, not by our faithfulness, but by Jesus' faithfulness, Jesus' effort, and Jesus' um, faithfulness. This truly should blow the mind. We get to God. We get to have right standing with God purely on the basis of grace. None of us is good enough. Our good deeds don't qualify us. Our bad deeds don't disqualify us. Jesus' record and righteousness and what he does on the cross is the means by which we have right standing with God. This opens up the door. No matter what you've done, you can come in if you trust in this blood. I tell you what, it doesn't only help you get in, it encourages you once you're in. See, his faithfulness to me motivates me to be, wanting to be faithful to him. Don't you want to be faithful to Jesus if you've got him in your life? I so want to live a life that pleases him. Last week, Jesse quoted that verse, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Well, well, then I want to be a person who believes. I want to hold on to God's promises. I want to show myself trusting in him, even in circumstances that make me wonder. I I still want to trust in God. His faithfulness to me motivates me to want to be faithful to him. But let me be honest, even though I'm motivated 
My motivation levels vary. And even when I want to be faithful to him, I find times in my life when I'm not faithful to him. What to do then? Well, thank goodness for the cross. When I filter his cross and the cup of communion tells me that he is faithful to me still. You see, if it was both me and Jesus that walked down the pathway to my salvation, then it hinges on my performance. But because Jesus went to the cross alone, he walked through that pathway alone, it hinges entirely on his grace. Though my grip on him at times falters, his grip on me never will. Salvation depends on God's grace alone. And then finally, Jesus comes out alive on the other side. Jesus comes out alive on the other side. In Genesis 15, this blazing torch passes through the bloody alley and the light stays open until the very end. Well, the story is slightly different in the New Testament version because the light of the world, Jesus himself marches up a hill, leaving a trail of blood, and he is crucified, and we're told that the sky goes dark. Possibly there was an uh, eclipse of the sun. Ellipse, eclipse, eclipse. Heifer and ellipse, eclipse. Teaching you all these cool words, eh? How you got so good at English, hearing a person preach uh, all over the place. The light of the world marches up a hill, leaving a trail of blood, and is crucified where all his blood pours out, then darkness. The torch of Jesus is snuffed out. All hope is gone. But that first Easter, we discover that the light has prevailed. I asked the question, underneath his arm, underneath you is everlasting arms or nothing at all. Well, you've got the death of Jesus to show you that he's not going to let you go. But how can you be sure that it's real? And the Bible gives us an answer. You know it's real because of the resurrection of Jesus. But hang on, Taryn, I'm a person that respects science and history. Well, I'm glad you respect history because the historical evidence for the resurrection is quite stunning. According to the exhaustive analysis by Gary Habermas in his book, The Historical Jesus, he surveys 1,400 academic sources published since 1975, printed in English, French, German, and nowadays the vast majority of scholars on the life of Jesus agree on four facts of history. Number one, Jesus died on a Roman cross on Friday and was buried in a tomb. Number two, that tomb was empty on Sunday morning. Number three, numerous witnesses testified at great peril to themselves that they saw Jesus alive multiple times after he had died, that they met with him and even ate with him. And number four, even the skeptic James and the mortal enemy of Christians, Saul of Tarsus, were convinced they had seen Jesus risen from the dead and both willingly died rather than recant. Jesus, James was stoned and Paul was beheaded. These are the facts of history. And although there are convoluted attempts to try to account for these facts, the most compelling uh, conclusion to these facts is that it really happened. Jesus rose again from the dead. But I want to add more evidence to this. Ever since I called on Jesus, I have known that underneath are his everlasting arms. And then having followed him for three decades already, I've got a, th a thousand times I've been in a room where Jesus made entry when I called or we called on his name. A thousand times. 
I've been in a room where Jesus made entry. This morning, we were praying. Jesus made entry, calling on his name. The Apostle Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. But he is risen. So in what can be described as the greatest reversal of fortunes since Cinderella, we have gone from condemnation, death, poverty, grief, and shame, to righteousness, life, riches, joy, and glory. And that's why all over the world, millions and millions of people are celebrating in the midst of lives that are often bleak, economies that are fallen in war-torn situations, in a society where there's so much that discourages, there are people that are tapping into a joy that is greater than the discouraging circumstances they find themselves in. This is the power of Jesus with us. This is the power of his death and resurrection. The cup has been poured. Come and drink. Can I ask you to stand up? We're the band back up. We're gonna take communion because Jesus told us to. If you are a follower of Jesus, then I'm sure you're ready to go get communion. But maybe you're new to church or back in church after a long time. Maybe you've had doubts about Jesus or you've been pretty convinced he's not legit. Maybe God has got you here today because this is your day. When the lights, the torch of Jesus lights up your life. When the blood that he, he poured out becomes the blood that you drink, the Savior that you trust in, so that you too can know the forgiveness of your sins, so that you too can know the life of God, the life of the Spirit, so you too can know the promise of God with you forever, so you too can know that underneath your life are everlasting arms. God's calling you today, then I want to encourage you right where you are to maybe pray a prayer of trusting in Him. I can guide you in it. Okay, there we go. God, thank you that you love me. You want to pray that prayer if he's calling you today? God, thank you that you love me. You can pray it under your breath. God, thank you for sending Jesus. Can you, can you pray that where you are? Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that he died on the cross for my sins. Can you pray that? Please forgive my sins. God, thank you that Jesus rose again from the dead. He's alive. Can you pray that? Come and live in me by your spirit. Take me into your family. Take me into your kingdom. Amen.